In your mind, do you see this as an opportunity for you to actually be the number one golf company in the world at some point? Kind of crossed the back of my mind, Adam. Hello, everybody. This is episode number 82 of No Pets Given. I'm Miranda. I'm here with Adam, Tony, Chris, and Harry's not here today. He's playing in U.S. Open qualifier. So we searched far and wide for someone to replace him. And we landed on Mr. Bob Parsons, owner and founder of PXG, among other things. Bob, we're happy to have you here. How are you? Uh, you know, I'm really pleased to be here. And, and I'm glad that the uh, first three guys uh, that you asked to to uh, fill in couldn't make it. So... Uh, yeah, yeah, we're glad that, you know, you could uh, squeeze us in last minute. <laughs> All right, guys. So, um, you know, Bob, I want to get started here. I was watching TV the other day and um, came across this new commercial that I hadn't seen before. Uh, it's about some golf clubs. They look beautiful. And at the very end, um, there's also a pig involved. And I think you have something to do with oh, it. Oh, yeah, it's a hog. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we just have fun. I'm part redneck. And... Uh, Nobody can ever take that away from me. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, how good our Gen 4 uh, clubs are. And one of the guys that I work with says, well, well, you know, what do people do that, you know, when they play with somebody and they don't have Gen 4 clubs and they get to see how well these are working? And I said, well, they feel bad. They feel so bad. They want to strap themselves to the side of a hog and roll it in the mud. And then I did the scale. <laughs> So can you take me inside like the, the idea table for that one? Like, is everybody sitting in a conference room thinking about, all right, what's our next commercial and the hog wins? The hog won. <laughs> like, yeah. Nobody could come up with anything to beat it. <laughs> Basically it's fun. And we just wanted to do something that uh, uh, viewers and watch. And I mean, you know, how many more times do you want to see a club commercial and they're going to move the weight to the perimeter? And I mean, on and on and on. And I said, let's do something people would remember and uh, would give them a smile. You know, tough to beat. Apparently. <laughs> what, what was the second best idea, Bob? Yeah, I, yeah I that's what I want to know. You know, we, we got some others. We got one uh, uh, where it talks about forgiveness. And uh, we're, we're working okay. on that now. And it talks about when I was a little boy, the number one thing I wanted was uh, forgiveness. And it shows my mother <laughs> looking at my report card. <laughs> my favorite part of the whole commercial is, well, one, like Bob said, like everybody's tired. It's going of straight, the straight in the back. Straight in the back. All commercials, right, in my opinion. So I like the hog part. But my favorite part is at the end where, you know, it fades out and Bob's laughing and they actually left that in the commercial. That's the best part in my opinion. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I like that you do all of the voiceovers. That's not, I mean, that's pretty unique. You take real ownership in the output of your company. I, I think that's awesome. Well, the reason I do all the voiceovers is because I'm always there, right? I'm, I'm involved in writing the commercials and uh, I don't get paid. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I want to jump into the larger topic that we've got to chat about today. And Tony, I wanted to defer to you because you were actually the person that sniffed this story out. Um, there are rumors circulating that certain retail outlets are considering or, or may already be charging a fee to demo clubs. So the try it before you buy it is no longer free at certain places. Yeah, it sounds that way. And again, I haven't, I haven't checked into it 
too deeply, but it, it, to me, it's just kind of a really intriguing concept because you, you do have this situation where, you know, whether you want to call them show rumors, looky loos, whatever, they, they use the, the pro shop, the, the, whether it's a Dick Sporting Goods, a green grass, mom and pop, whatever it happens to be, is sort of like, this is where I'm going to go to try it. And once I decide what I want, I'm going to go internet shopping and, and try and find a better deal. And so you have the situation where, you know, shops are, are dedicating resources in terms of personnel, right? The people that are that are with you in the hitting bay and, you know, you're, you're putting wear and tear on the golf clubs and it, it's just so somebody can go spend their money somewhere else. So, you know, whether or not it's it's true or, or what the what the nuance there, it, it's really kind of this this interesting idea that that maybe look if you're going to come in and, and spend some time and, and use our resources you know you need to have a little skin in the game and commit to to putting some money on the table knowing that hey if you do buy from us you're going to get that back but if you're just using us as essentially a, a driving range for you to play with new toys then you know it's going to cost you a little bit so interesting concept i don't think it's totally unreasonable what is a little bit do you know what that fee was i'd have to go back i mean i've, I've heard 50 bucks um, but again, you know, not confirmed and I'm sure it's still substantial. I mean, it's a chunk. Okay. So for example, Adam, you go into a store, you're like, I, I think I need a new driver. Let's say you test what's available. You pay your $50 thinking you're going to walk out of there with a new driver. You don't end up liking any of them and you just sacrifice 50 bucks in order to go and, you know, try some clubs at a retail outlet. What, what do you think this is going to do to consumers relationship with, retail outlets and trying clubs. I think it's a terrible idea. Um, I think it doesn't serve ultimately the, the consumer best, right? It's it's not enticing to them to want to come in. It's not enticing to the retailer, right? Uh, to want to allow these people to come in and test gear. And, you know, to them, it's they're losing money, right? They pay this X amount for this retail club or demo club and people beat it up. So it's it doesn't work for either party. Um, I think retail needs to be looking for ways to better serve the consumer rather than ways to do it like this. And I think there's really simple ways. I mean, I worked at a retail shop as a kid and, you know, uh, the first thing we implemented was bring your driver and we'll beat it, right? More objective based, bring people in with the objective that we can outperform what you own and they're more likely to buy what you test with versus come in, spend 50 bucks and, you know, kick some tires and stuff like that. The objective is different. And I think you walk out with a person that's pissed off that spent 50 bucks versus somebody that came in and you beat their driver by 8.5 yards and they they leave a little bit happier, right? So I don't like it, you know, but. Chris, how about you? Can, can you see it from the retailer standpoint or are you more on the consumer side where we're preaching fittings all of the time? And if you can't go and try these clubs out, how can we continue to, to preach? You got to try it before you commit to it. Where do you stand here? Yeah, I think it's a balance of those a little bit where, um, I mean, look, we know that historically the, the, the way that current retail works is it's broken. I think the fact that retailers are, are, you know, even engendering the concept of charging for demo or whatever we want to call that is evidence of just how broken that system is. It's a terrible idea, but it's a terrible idea that's born out of a bad situation. You know, maybe this is a little bit of a segue into, you know, how PXG started doing things with on-site individual fittings so they could kind of manage and curate an entire experience and, and basically control the experience from from fitting through delivery. Not every 
OEM, you know, a manufacturer necessarily has the opportunity to do that. But you've also seen an article I wrote last week or whatever around a couple different types of iron fitting. You have brand agnostic fitters, you have single company fitters, and then you have, you know, this retail space. I think retail would do well to say, okay, let's scrap everything that we're currently doing now. What can we control? What can't we control? But how can we do something that's radically different so that we don't have people just coming in to kick tires, right? If their choice is, hey, keep it as it is or pay 50 bucks to come demo a club you might buy or not, those are two really, really piss poor options. And so to me, they got to, you know, you got to think creatively, like said, Adam, maybe it's objective base, maybe it's offering different level of fittings. But retailers also know that historically there are some sunk costs, right? They want to get people in the door. I mean, there's a reason the hitting bays are at the back of a, a, a store, right? So you got to walk by everything else you could possibly buy, hopefully to get there and walk by it all again on the way out. You know, so I think there's a lot of room to be creative, uh, a lot of room to to look at that. But is it a good idea? No, it's not a good idea. And it's not a good idea, largely because it's coming from a bad place. Bob, I want to get your perspective here because you obviously represent the manufacturing side of this. And I know PXG does have a more unique retail strategy. What sets PXG apart in the way that they do retail? And then we'll sort of dig into how this could affect traditional retail. Well, we are one of the few that uh, sells only direct. Uh, so, you know, we don't we don't sell through PGA, Superstore, Dick's, Vans, on and on. Uh, we, we prefer to go direct to the uh, customer. And we also are, are, are building out our own retail store network. Uh, so far, we have seven stores. Uh, uh, by the end of the year, we'll have 12. And then and then the following year, we should have 24. So we're very different and we're not affected by that. But uh I will say one thing in in uh, defense of uh, the retail stores is that, you know, they're there to move equipment. That's why they're there. Now, they're also there to provide a service. But what's happening now is we have an explosion of people getting involved in uh, in golf, which is which is really good. And what's probably happening to them is that they have. All their their uh, fitting stations or uh, hitting bays are are full with people waiting. And what they want is they want the guy that's actually coming in there to buy a driver or to buy irons. They want him to be able to hit as opposed to the group that's just there to have fun and have, uh, well, they just want to go uh, beat balls. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. And I would say that if things were like they were with COVID, where you have half the base being used at most, um, you wouldn't see this. So uh, I, I think it's just, it's one of those things where there's an argument on both sides. And what I, what I think will happen is as things res- resume and get back to normal, all the stimulus money spent and all that sort of stuff, you'll see that go away if it exists now. So that's my thoughts. Adam, one of your theories is to, okay, how do we meet in the middle here was that manufacturers should simply provide a full demo set to retail outlets so that retailers aren't the ones that are losing money on this end. Yeah, it's tough, right? I mean, when you really step back and think about it, Tony and I were talking about this a little while ago and clubs kind of sit in the middle. Let's take a t-shirt and a car 
a t-shirt costs 30 bucks. You don't really give a shit if somebody tries it on and gets some makeup on it, puts it on the rack. You send it to TJ Maxx and get rid of it, right? And then I end up That's where it. I shop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you got a Mercedes, right? That's $50,000. People test drive those and are expected to test drive those. Golf clubs sit in the middle, 500 bucks, something like that. The other difference is with a Mercedes, nine times out of 10, probably when the person brings it back, they haven't put a sky mark on the top of the fucking Mercedes hood, right? With a golf club, that can happen. So it's in this weird space, I think. But yeah, it is kind of odd to me, which is one of the reasons I think PXG is smart about how they're doing this and how retail is broken. If I'm the owner of TaylorMade, just the fact that I'm in a retail space in general with all the different brands competing against me, all the people that are fitting people, not best educated on my product versus the competitions. And then, oh, by the way, the retailer's got to pay a demo set to come there. Like if I'm the brand, I'm trying to take care of that retailer in a different way, right? I'm trying to differentiate myself. So I go in there, maybe give them the, the demo set for free, give them some incentive to you know, be educated more on mine than theirs. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a tough balance and it does sit in the middle, which once again, my solution is I feel like if you fit more golfers, so many golfers walk into a store and are intimidated to even ask somebody to go into a bay, right? Yeah. Then once they do, the person that's usually fitting them might be an hourly wage person that has two weeks of training and doesn't know what the hell they're doing sometimes, you know? There's just a lot of problems at retail and this happens to be another one of them, in my opinion. What would you think about that, Bob, if manufacturers and say PXG did participate in the more traditional retail space, gave a full demo set to stores for this exact issue? I would be surprised if um, uh, most of the major manufacturers aren't doing that already, because, you know, at the at, at the end of the day, uh, you, you definitely want your clubs there for people to hit. Now, uh, I'll tell you the way we do it at PXG. We have uh, 85 fitting locations and we have seven full-fledged stores. If somebody wants to, to hit any of our clubs, bang, it's, that, that's done. There's clubs waiting for them to hit. Uh, but the caveat there is business is so good right now that all our bays are full most of the time now uh, doing uh, custom fittings. Now, we charge 50 bucks for a custom fitting. And it takes about an hour and a half. And basically what that does is that narrows the, the people that were doing fittings uh, for the people that actually want to buy clubs. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's what we're interested. We're interested in people playing our sticks and uh, that that makes it happen. By the same token, if we have a bay open and somebody wants to hit clubs, by all means. And uh, for us, it's uh, we've never charged for it won't charge for it. And many times uh, we'll have our PXG tents set up on a driving range. Uh, any, anybody come up and hit our sticks there. So you're you're less worried about the depreciation of clubs if people are trying. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the reason is we have confidence in our clubs that when somebody hits them, they're going to want them. Ah, I like that. I like that. Chris, <laughs> what do you think? What do you think about what Bob has contributed from the manufacturer standpoint? Well, you know, I mean, it goes back to, I mean, this is something Tony, Adam, and I have talked about, you know, ad nauseum going back a number of years is, you know, would work on that first article, the first PXG effect article. And, um, you know, PXG has been disruptive kind of by design. I mean, and, and Bob, please correct me 
if I'm wrong, but it really wasn't never it never it was actually intended to be like a major golf company. It was more of like, hey, here's here's an opportunity. Let's see where it goes. And in doing so, you know, there's a couple luxuries involved there where, you know, most manufacturers have to work within pretty tight budget constraints and pretty tight time cycles, things that tend to drive the industry. And, you know, kind of since minute one, PXG has kind of said, you know, we're going to we're going to do this thing totally differently. And maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't work. But we're at least going to do it kind of the way that we want to do it and see what happens. And so I would never expect PXG to to try to replicate anybody else's retail experience. If anything, it's going to go kind of the, you know, the other route where you'll probably see and have seen other manufacturers kind of look and say, hmm, okay, well, that's working for them. How could we maybe implement something similar? I think that's part of the reason you've seen in the last two years a company like Hanma, which has you know worked and struggled on different levels to establish itself in North America, trying to do a very, very similar fitting approach. It does have some more you know green grass elements and more of a retail traditional retail presence but it's really trying to get out and fit people on site at their you know at their own courses on location and do it in a one-on-one fitting environment well three four years ago that was effectively the plan that pxg rolled out so beyond the clubs themselves it's a different conversation it's you know i said it from the first article and into the second article there's people that love it people that hate it uh, it's always been kind of divisive, but the reality is if, you know, I don't think Bob makes any requirements of people like him or the company. If you want it, here it is. If not, you know, take it or leave it. It's it's an opportunity and a choice, but it's doing things fundamentally differently than any other company has done them, certainly in the modern version of what golf retail is. I mean, if any of that's wrong, Bob, that, I mean, you and I have had a number of conversations about it. I think, you know, I think that's relatively accurate anyway. Well, and with, without a doubt, we are, uh, I learned a long time ago, and I learned it uh, with the Marine Corps. Uh, you know, you don't go head to head with anybody. Uh, it's best to uh, go around the sides or up through the back. So uh, when we competed with, with uh, all the existing companies and, and entered the market, we did a number of things that had never been done before. And uh, what happened was it happened at a time when, uh, as you recall, the golf market was was just really depressed. Forbes read an article, where did all the golfers go on and on and on. And that's that's when we came into the business and everybody took notice. And, uh, you know, as you know, from all the uh, posts that your uh, your your readers did is uh, people wouldn't expect us to be around for six months. <laughs> well, you know, we started in 2013 and it's 2021. So we kind of eclipsed that. And, uh, <laughs> and our model is a little different now. Let me ask you a question, Bob. Um, do you think that there's any chance, like you said, when I wrote the first article about PHE when it first launched, you know, and the comment section was just filled with people saying this, this guy's going to be around for, you know, six days to six months, yeah. right? All these years later, you're still here and thriving, but now thriving to a point where a thought starts to cross a mind where now you're a serious player. When we see the polls that we do and surveys we do with our readers and you're starting to rank with the you know top five companies in the world, in your mind, 
Do you see this as an opportunity for you to actually be the number one golf company in the world at some point? Kind of crossed the back of my mind, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think it's realistic, though? Do you think that if you continue on the path that you're down and and sticking to the the things that you do that are disrupting the industry, do you think realistically you end up there? You know, I think so. I think so. Um, when When I started GoDaddy, uh, we were told that uh, there's no room for another player in that market. Now, GoDaddy has a 76% market share. Uh, when I started my first business, Parsons Technology, same thing. Did it here in Arizona with motorcycles. We have six big motorcycle dealerships. And uh, so, yeah, one step at a time, one day at a time. And, uh, you know, that's how we run things. Now, the one thing I will tell you is, you know, I, I think we have a really good shot of doing that. And we don't have goals at the company. We just don't use them. I think they're counterproductive. And, and the reason we is we focus on one thing. We focus on getting better every day. Our products getting better, our way of uh, selling and making and everything that we do getting better. And uh, you do that over time, sales take care of itself. So what's next then? What's the next thing that you're going to focus on if it's one thing at a time? It's getting better. Well, <laughs> getting better. And, uh, have, I'm asking for all the company secrets here. And having our clubs more available in locations that tell only our mm-hmm. story and specifically do tell our story. And that's all the uh, stores that we're opening. You know, right now we have uh, full-fledged stores and and uh, we, we have three in Arizona. Uh, we have one in Chicago, uh, Minneapolis, and we're, we're opening stores in, in uh, uh, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, Boston, okay. Washington, D.C., and even Detroit. <laughs> All right. Well, well, Bob, Bob, what about Colorado, Bob? You got anything coming to Denver? Yeah. What I hear from Bob is a list of big cities, right? So what do you do if you're a guy like me, right? I'm like... Hey, this this Gen Four stuff looks kind of interesting. Maybe I'd like to go demo some, and I, I go up and and look at the the nearest PXG fitting location, and it's two hours away. Whereas, you know, if I want to go get fit for a, a Titleist or a TaylorMade or a Callaway, it's it's twenty minutes top. So, how do you reconcile that with your distribution model? That for a lot of golfers, they're just really hard to find a place to try them. Well, uh, one of the things that we're, we're doing, we're in the process of launching a pretty um, broadband uh, rental program uh, where you can rent a set to use for, uh, for a few days. So, so that'll happen. And uh, beyond that, you know, we'll, we'll send a truck there with a demo tent and uh, we do that all the time. So, you know, and then there's others that, hey, you know, we're not going to reach you. We'll catch you next time. Or buy it on the internet. We sell our stuff with a guarantee. So, uh, so, so there's a number of ways, but we realize that we're not going to get to everybody right now. But the point is, the people we can get to do a marvelous job. Hey, I want to. I want everybody to tell us in the comments if you think PXG can make it to the number <laughs> one um, golf club. So, I I'm interested to see what everybody has to think, and if you're going to be shy just because Mr. Parsons is here on I our show, not. but let us have it. We want to know. Yeah, probably not. Tough to uh, bet against a guy that won a farting contest by shitting. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> wait, 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 wait. 
wait, 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 what? This sounds like a story. I'm <laughs> that has to be good. Is that just an expression? Hey, that's a no, that's a story he told me when I first met him. You know, he said, uh, how many readers you got? He didn't know much about my gospel, I don't think. I said, uh, 300,000 a month. He said, I don't give a shit. I didn't know. <laughs> he said, uh, call me when you got a million. So I said, damn, a million readers a month. I said, okay. So he walked off his way, I walked off mine. About 15 minutes later, he walked back. He goes, you know how you get to a million? I said, how, how's that? And he goes, if you're in a farting contest, you got to be willing to shit your pants. I said, <laughs> I said that, that will do it. That will do it. I think there's a big t-shirt opportunity there. That I, makes more sense than I was Does expecting it? <laughs> I think what you're trying to say is you got to go the extra mile, but. Well, I think what it's saying, Miranda, is you got to be willing to fail. And, uh, uh, you know, I can't think of anything in this country uh, that, uh, you know, epitomizes failure more than shitting in your pants. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were going to say golf. Uh, yep. There is a correlation there. But I wanted to I wanted to ask you. All right. We talked about this. Golf is golf is booming right now. Almost, you know, sort of a, a second generation of the, of the tiger boom because of COVID. Right. Where you mentioned new golfers hitting base packed, that sort of thing. I want to know what you think this looks like a year down the road, right? We know a lot of a lot of the strength of golf right now comes from the fact that for a lot of us, there isn't other things to do. You, at least from my experience, a lot of guys stop playing because they've got to take their kids on all these traveling sports things, right? So that wasn't going on. What What happens when life returns to normal, I guess, if you want to use that word? What is the retention level within the game of golf, do you think? You know, what I'd like to see happen, I would like to see the boom continue forever. Uh, what I think is probably going to happen is I think it's going to soften and approach kind of where it was. And and there's a couple of things that, that get in the way with people playing golf, and that is for new golfers. First, it takes a, a, a degree of dedication and, you know, a group that you're, you're happy to be with because golf is a very difficult sport to – to, uh, to learn and to excel at. You know, I often say it takes five years to learn to golf swing. Uh, the other thing is it's a significant time commitment. And for somebody getting going and raising a family, you know, that tends to be an issue. If they do kind of, you know, get past the break-in point and uh, they, they, they have some friends that they like playing with, they're going to have a hard time not playing. Uh, so, uh, so there's, there's a number of things that I think at work here, it's going to be interesting to watch and see what happens. And of course, uh, we're, we're, we're going to do everything we can to see that the boom continues, but, uh, it may be above our pay grade at the moment. What was PXG's experience during COVID? I mean, from start to where we are now, was it difficult at any point more than others or how has PXG fared in general? Well, here's what happened to us. When COVID first bit in March uh, and, and we had all the shutdowns happen, uh, particularly at the malls and, and the state of California, mm -hmm. you know, all our big competitors are located in California, except for Penn. So the malls were shut down for, for a while, which took all the big retailers like P, uh, uh, PGA Tour Store Dicks and, and, and so mm -hmm. forth. And we are the only company who was selling direct. And because we were in Arizona, uh, we weren't shut down. And so we were hit with literally a tidal wave of orders. Oh. Initially, when that hit us, 
we had significant inventory, but what we didn't have is we didn't have, since we do our own building, um, it took us nine weeks to fulfill an order. And I'm surprised at how many people were, were willing to wait for that. And then as time moved on and on and on and on, um, uh, we have increased our, 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 our build capability. And now we got it down to a week or less. So that was, it was good for us, but our, uh, our sales increased 200%. In COVID from start yeah. to finish? Yeah, we had a bang right. up year and it looks like the trend's continuing. So uh, we're absolutely thrilled. You know, GoDaddy, when I came close to shutting GoDaddy down, and the thing that saved GoDaddy was the dot-com bust. <laughs> you know, when I sh- decided not to shut it down and go broke with the company, if the company went broke, uh, we had the uh, dot-com bust take place. And in about six months, we became profitable, never missed a month since. And it's interesting that COVID's going to do the same thing for PXG. We talked about it on the show last week, and Tony, you can kind of fill in some details here that a lot of companies are behind. You're having there's a long wait time when you order a club and and things like that. So PXG seems to be uh, on the right side of things, whereas other manufacturers didn't fare quite so well. Tony, what what were some of the wait times that you were quoting last week? I think a month to six weeks is probably fairly standard for a custom order right now. In some cases, shafts have been an issue. There's a an issue that hasn't been rectified with grips going on. So a lot of it is on the component side, and a lot of it too is is just volume. And Bob, you you may be able to help me with this too. I think I think part of it is trying to forecast what that roadmap looks and and how much do you try and upscale your production and things like that, knowing that you know if if this doesn't continue all those people you brought on you're, you're probably going to have to turn around and let and let them go again so i think there's there's probably some of that trying to figure out how to right size the business well you know i think uh we're we're in a we're in a really good position uh as far as that's concerned and we make it a point to be pretty liberal with the with the inventory that that we order and and the reason that we do is again because we sell direct uh, like everybody else, we have our lead product, which is Gen 4, but we also sell Gen 3 at a pretty good price. We also have uh, our 0211, our cast line, and we sell those for 99 bucks a stick and uh, move thousands of them every week. Uh, so uh, we're, you know, we're, we're doing okay. So we know that if we order too much inventory and we can't sell it now, we'll sell it later. So what aren't other companies doing that PXG has figured out in order to thrive in COVID? What are other companies missing? <laughs> what are other, you know, I'm, Miranda, I'm, I'm going to let them answer that. <laughs> All right, Adam, what are other companies not doing that PXG seem to figure out? I thought that might be the answer. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you gotta ask. You never know. He could have been like, it's a good day. I'm going to answer it. Well, I'll give you an example. I call it controlling your own destiny, right? And Bob has put his destiny in his own hand more than the other manufacturers, in my opinion. And so let's take grips, for example. If you're needing grips from another company and you can't get those grips because those grips actually don't exist, somebody else is controlling your destiny, right? I think Bob has put himself in a position to control his destiny from a a manufacturing standpoint, distribution standpoint, retail standpoint, more than all the other brands put together. Yeah, I think adding to that, you know, you look at 
the real reasons companies have to make certain decisions, all the ugly, nasty stuff that happens, you know, in smoke filled rooms, behind closed doors, board meetings, etc. A lot of times that comes down to ownership and structure and issues of power, control, investment, etc. Um, and unless things have changed drastically, Bob, you're the sole investor, the sole, uh, you know, financial support behind the company. So there is no debt. There are no other masters to serve. It's when things need to happen, decisions need to get made. The the board of directors is is a pretty quick meeting, right? I mean, it's it's you know, and there there aren't all these other mouths to feed necessarily. So you can be you can pivot, scale, slash prices, yeah. do whatever you want to do as you need to without trying to handle all these different other, you know, levels of business. Chris has seven daughters, right? Chris has seven, seven daughters. daughters. How, hard, how, how hard is it to just go in and go, <laughs> all right, everybody, what do we want for dinner tonight? You know what I mean? Those board meetings are crowded. We started that conversation right? in January and we still don't have a goddamn answer. <laughs> you know, like The absolutely only thing we care about is that our new clubs are off the hook as far as technology is concerned. And, uh, and when we, we bring those new clubs out, you know, they're a little pricey, but what people are paying for then is they're paying for being able to use our technology now. And uh, if they want to wait a year or two, well, like our, our Gen 3 clubs, uh, we dropped those to 199 a stick and, and, and so forth. But the technology's outstanding. Get to play it later. So our model is so different from everybody else's. And we can do that because we're not in the same sales channel as everybody else, where uh, they're, you know, they're, they're paying spiffs, they're looking for payments on location, marketing support, and all that stuff. And they send people to these big stores. And, and uh, to be honest with you, they don't know if, uh, you know, the guy is, you know, let's say they're tailor-made and they go in and, and Cobra's paying the salesman a spiff. The guy says, well, I'd like to look at the... Uh, uh, Taylor May driver and the salesman goes, you really should check out the Cobra driver. <laughs> I mean, and, 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 and on and on. I don't have to deal with that. All right. Yeah. Now, the other thing that I don't have to deal with is a number of these companies, you know, Titleist and Callaway right now, TaylorMade's on its way, is, is they're public companies. And being a public company, the thing they have to be preoccupied with is earnings and all the other metrics to preserve their stock price for their shareholders. I'm the only shareholder and, uh, you know, we don't have to deal with that. So, so we, we have another edge. And then the other thing is, since we are controlling pretty much everything as far as marketing our clubs, we can make price changes when we want to. Uh, we can make other changes. We don't have all these people in the chain, you know, uh, threatening to be, at, you know, alienated and so forth. If we make something that is better for our customers and not for them. I think that's a much bigger advantage than people will think, you know, that ability to change price on a dime and not have that aircraft carrier having to turn around, you know, because like when COVID hit, right? I mean, how quick, boom, like that, you can change your price. Oh, took off. Yeah. So you came in, you were, you were really for a while, the premium brand in the North American market, right? I mean, you had, but an $850 driver, you know, irons 400 plus now. How do you, how do you reconcile that piece of the, the PXG identity as this uber premium brand with 
a, a the same company that also took some of that same product, blew it out at, at substantially lower prices, and then added a a new line in, in the O211, which is you know now full line and and by by conventional golf standards now dirt cheap. So how do you kind of keep those i two identities in balance and how do they coexist without hurting your brand? Well, the first thing I'll tell you, Tony, that was the plan all along. Um, well, you know, I didn't bother telling anybody because it's kind of my secret. <laughs> but uh, so, so you know, we still have an ultra premium brand in our in our Gen 4s. And we will always have a product of that caliber. But what will happen is when we introduce Gen 5, whenever that is, there'll be a couple things that will happen. First, Gen 5 will base it noticeably better than Gen 4. Gen 4 will then uh, drop in price to be a uh, uh, middle market, and uh, things will continue like that. And what will happen is to be able to move into our Gen 3 irons now uh, at 199 or if that price decreases further as time goes on, is very, very appealing because, like I said, you only got to hit them once. And uh, the new products that we continue to work on, we will always spend whatever we have to to make them good, to make them excellent. I mean, we don't worry about cost at all when we do this. What we do, I mean, and, and you know, we try to be smart about it. We don't want to be stupid in what we spend, and we're not. But we don't engineer our products to meet a price point. We set the price point to to, to uh, take care of us for what it costs us to, to build outstanding clubs. And I mean, and that's our model. That will always be our model. So our readers are very vocal and they tell us exactly what they think. So PXG clubs come out, they're premium and more the more expensive clubs on the market. And they let us know like, hey, this is just, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be a PXG person because they're out of my price range. So now as you're introducing some more attainable price brackets, were you watching all along and seeing, because I'm sure you saw comments in, in your sphere as well about, you know, the price points. Were you knowing that the prices were always going to drop and you're kind of watching these comments trickle in thinking, oh, you just you wait. Well, you know, I did, you know, and I, I, I will tell you one thing about your readers. They're not shy about uh, telling people how to calculate the cabbage, right? No, nope. no. I mean, I mean, they're, they're, they're right there. and They're to the point and they're not shy. Yeah. That's for yeah. sure. So, so no, no, was I uh, smiling? You know, we were like uh, the guy looking for uh, uh, Diogenes, you know, looking for an honest man going through the fog. You know, we're just trying to figure out how to sell golf clubs, right? Our way. And, uh, you know, and I, th I think we got there or we're getting there. Bob, why don't we, um, you think we can do a round of Ask Bob Anything? How about it? All right, let's see. Who wants to go first? Does anybody have anything that mm. they've been waiting to ask? I know I kind of sprung this on you, so I'll give you a oh, minute to think about Lord. it. Oh, Ask Bob Anything. While you guys think on that, I'll tell a pretty interesting story. Uh, Bob owned GoDaddy, right? And the other day we were talking about buying the domain. He sells GoDaddy, gets rid of GoDaddy, buys PXG. I said, how much did you pay for that domain from the old company? And he said, eight bucks. <laughs> I just thought that was really interesting. I don't know why, but I was like, wow, that's that's a hell of a deal on a, <laughs> on a three-letter domain, which are almost impossible well, to get. See, see, the reason is somehow it was available. And uh, it was PXG. And, you know, uh, a lot of people think, you know, I named the company Parsons Extreme Golf. 
and then bought the found the domain it didn't happen that way i found the domain name on xg play extra no that's not it <laughs> so eventually uh that's how parsons extreme golf came to be you just had to drop the e off the x right <laughs> for sure all right I, I got a question so and bob you can't nick follow me here and give me the predictable answer. So I'm going to tell you, you can't say all of them. They're all great. One club, the single best club PXG has ever produced. Ooh, I like this. Mm. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's uh, it's a tie right now. And it's between <laughs> our Gen 4 irons and our uh, Gen 4 driver. I got our Gen 4 drivers off the hook. We finally got it right with that, baby. So, um, so so I'm I'm really proud of that. But the irons, man, they are nothing to sneeze at. So that's it. Now I know I picked two. I know it was under I wasn't supposed to do that. And if I had to pick one between the two, I, I would pick the full bag off. <laughs> hey, it's like twenty percent off. You go with the full bag. I, I haven't hit the the Gen Four driver, so I'm just going to say that the, I think the correct answer was the Gen Two hybrid. <laughs> Tony Cam, you didn't know there was a correct answer. <laughs> that was a loaded question. <laughs> what do you What do you got, Miranda? Oh gosh, I've asked all of the questions so far. I got a question. If you want me to go, okay, Chris, you go while I. So yeah. one thing um, that I think doesn't get covered enough in hybrids, you know, the Bob. The Bob Parsons conversation is the filling, you know, the philanthropic side to, you know, to what you do throughout a year. If you had to put an estimate on it, how much do you give away on an annual basis with all of your charities, the, you know, Bob and Renee Parsons Foundation, et cetera? If you had, to, you know, Semper Fi, if you had to put that all into one check that you wrote at the beginning of the year, how much would it be? $26 million is uh what we're we moved to charity and that uh the uh, meaning of that number is one every, a million every 14 days uh so that's what i moved to, we moved to charity i do most to military causes and the reason i do that is uh when i was a kid and joined the marine corps in 1968 wound up in vietnam carrying a rifle um i come i i was terrible I mean, I failed the fifth grade, which is that commercial I was telling you about earlier. I was terrible in school. I come out of the Marine Corps. I was a different guy. I worked in a steel mill for a year as a laborer, shoveling these big turret lathes pits out. I went to college, didn't even know you needed a major. Uh, and I uh, wound up, opened the, the book. First major in the book was accounting and uh, decided to take that. If I opened it backwards, I'd have been a zoologist. <laughs> but, uh, so everything, I, I, I went to college, graduated magna cum laude, passed the CPA exam the first time, taught myself completely how to program a computer, built the company with that knowledge, put 40 grand into it, sold it for 64 million, then started GoDaddy, then started my you know, my, my businesses now, I'd have never done any of that without the Marine Corps. So uh, long as I got a dime, their cause has got a nickel. We move 10 million a year to the Semper Five Fund. We move um, over a million to Headstrong. We help the uh, local police here. We move a million two to, 
to help help them injuries and help their families and all the shit that they deal with. One new cause is uh, psychedelics, baby. Uh, we got uh, this group called MAPS yeah. that we're on the verge of having MDMA approved for uh, uh, therapeutic use. And in that respect, it is a game changer. I mean, eliminates PTSD totally over 60% of the time in a couple sessions. Uh, this will save so many lives, make the world so much better. And people come through this, all the shit that they went through to put them where they're at. This fixes it. It actually fixes it. Uh, so uh, we're on a renaissance that is incredible. We gave MAPS $2 million to help them get uh, MDMA approved. And uh, we're in that for the long haul. So, uh, you know what? The economy's been good to me. Uh, you know, we need, to, we need to return the favor. And that's what we do. Yeah, a million bucks every 14 days. Yes, sir. I mean, think about that. That's, that's cool. I think that a lot of people hear, you know, kind of the, the gruff voice and exterior and loud kind of, you know, bombastic personality and stuff. And, and people don't uh, always get to hear the, the real daily impact for others that need the help you know, both in your local community and, and throughout the country that get an awful lot of help from you, um, you know, every year. So I think that's cool. Thank you. Thank you. I like the term bombastic. I know I'll be here. <laughs> <laughs> There's another t-shirt, Bob. There's a t-shirt coming yeah. out. Just, just send me an XL. All right. I think I have my question. What has been your most difficult business venture? And was there ever a point where you didn't think that you'd be where you are today or you thought maybe I won't make it? You know, all my life, I thought I, I, I wasn't, you know, maybe, maybe I wouldn't make it, but I take things a day at a time. Uh, when I, when I got over to Vietnam and I uh, was with uh, the 26 Marines and I first got to my unit, I thought for sure I would die over there. I didn't see any way I'd come out of that alive, but I did. And I did it a day at a time, looking forward to mail call every day. With Parsons technology, I, I didn't see where that would ever make it, but it turned all at once. GoDaddy, the same thing. When I started GoDaddy, I had 36 million in cash from uh, my deal with Parsons technology. I sold it for 64 million. I was married then. My wife took a lot of the money and she rode into the sunset. She deserved it. Um, and I uh, still love her, love her dearly. Uh, but, but, any, and anyhow, you know, stuff just happens with GoDaddy. I measured how that was doing by how much cash I had. And when I started it, I had like 36 million. And I said, I won't worry about this business till I get down to 30, hit 30, 25, 25, 20, 10, 8, 6. At $6 million, you know, and, and this was during the height of the dot-com boom. I was thinking, I maybe I ought to just shut this down while I still have some money. One of the things I do is I keep my own counsel. I don't really discuss my decisions uh, with a lot of people until I decide what they're going to be. So I went to Hawaii by myself to figure out how I was going to wind the company down, pay the employees, take care of uh, people I owed money to, and, uh, and then maybe have some money left. And the epiphany happened for me when there was a guy my age he comes up to me to get my car. He's at parking cars, throwing the keys in the air, happy as a lark. And he's going, hey, you know, Mr. Parsons, this guy was my age. He's parking cars, happy as a lark. And I'm going, what's wrong with this? 
this guy's happy as a lark. I got six million and I'm miserable. So I decided I'd go back and I would take and uh, strap myself to the to the to the helm of the ship. And if it went down, I'd go down with it. And I decided that if the company went broke and I went broke with it, I wouldn't park cars. I'd go to Vegas and be a stick man on a table. Uh, perhaps table. That's <laughs> something I think I could do pretty good, you know. In the lumber or no number, give us man $3,500 for a superior knowledge <laughs> in the game. You know, I'd have done, I'd, I'd have done that. And uh, what, uh, what happened was I went back, didn't do a thing different. Dot-com crash happened. And most of the people we were competing with all went away. And before that, I couldn't buy advertising at any price. After that, I had people standing in line to give me advertising. I had more friends than I thought I had. And, and uh, so, you know what? There's a lot to be said. Just hanging in there, brother, sister. You know, just hang in there. All right. Have you... um? Found that parking guy and called him since and said, hey, thanks, man. <laughs> All of this is because of you. I think it's fine now. Stick man on a table in favor. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, Bob, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast. Anything else you guys want to bring up with Bob before we let him get back to his, everything that keeps him busy? How's the, uh, how's the T-sheet at Scottsdale National looking these days, Bob? You as jam-packed as everybody else? No, it's uh, pretty wide open. Always, <laughs> always is, and uh, uh, that's that's the way I keep it. And I think uh, it's it's nice to have a place like that where where golf is played that way. No dress code. My favorite part. Oh yeah, that's nice. Just don't ruin somebody else's good time. There you go. One rule. Well, I'll tell you what, guys. Thanks for thanks for having me on. I love the job you do. You guys, keep it up. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks. Happy to have you back anytime you want to come back. We're here every Tuesday. Don't forget to like, subscribe. Tell us what you think in the comments. Uh, we're reading them. We might respond. So let us know. Until next time, we out. I'll be a little kinder than most. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fair enough. <laughs> I'll see you guys. Thank you so much. <laughs>